If you would, please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 4. 1 Kings 4, so up to this point in the book, uh, Solomon has seceded, succeeded his father David on the throne as king of Israel. In chapter 3, we looked at how Solomon asked for wisdom from the Lord, and the Lord granted his request, fulfilled his promise uh, in abundance. Chapter 4 is, is very much of the same thing, God's faithfulness to his people in fulfilling his promises. So 1 Kings 4. King Solomon was king over all Israel. And these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Elihareph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. And Zabud, the son of Nathan, was priest and king's friend. And Abishar was in charge of the palace, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. And Solomon had twelve officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year, and these were their names. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, Ben-Decker in Makash, Shealbim, Beth-Shemesh, and Elan beth hanan Ben-Hesed in Aruboth, to him belongs Saka in all the land of Hefer, Ben-Abinadab in all Naphoth-Dor, he had Tafath, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. And Ba'ana, the son of Ahilud, and in Taanach, Megiddo, and all Bethshem, that is beside Zarathon below Jezreel, and from Bethshem to Abel Mahala, as far as the other side of Jachmim. Ben Geber, in Ramoth Gilead, he had the villages of Jer, the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead, and he had the region of Argob, which is in Bashan, sixty great cities with walls and bronze bars. Ahinadab, the son of Iddo, in Mahanaim. Ahimaaz, in Naphtali. He had taken Basimoth, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Baana, the son of Hushai, in Asher and Bealoth. Jehoshaphat, the son of Perua, in Issachar. Shimei, the son of Elah, in Benjamin. Gemer, or Geber, the son of Uri. In the land of Gilead, the country of Sihon, king of Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan. And there was one governor who was over the land. And Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. And they ate and drank and were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tiphsah to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. 
and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. And Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. And they let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman and Calcol and Darda the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. And he also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and reptiles and fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all, king, all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray now, Lord, that you would bless its preaching and use it, Father, to encourage our hearts and build us up in Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen. As a young teen, I would say that, that the one thing that I thought that I could not live without uh, would be driver's license. Now, where I grew up, it seemed as if if you didn't have driver's license, I mean, you didn't have anything to do. Like, you, you, your life was meaningless. I mean, theoretically, you know, you couldn't go anywhere, you couldn't hang out with your friends, you had no freedom, and you, plain and simple, just had no life if you could not drive. Uh, that was what we, we thought, at least. Uh, we know that that wasn't the reality. Uh, I don't know why we were so concerned about it in the first place, because even though we couldn't drive vehicles, we drove our four-wheelers and our ATVs and whatever else we could muster up, to wherever we wanted to go, basically, and hang out with those same friends. But nevertheless, driver's license was the thing that we all waited on. I can't wait to turn 16. That's when my life will finally begin, and I'll finally have freedom. I'll finally be able to go and do what I want to do. I'll finally you know, have true joy, because I'll have what I want. But... 30-year-old me looks back on 12 to 16-year-old me and is like, no, nah, driver's license is not that big of a deal. I wish I had to spend more time enjoying that season of life rather than thinking so much about what I didn't have. I wish I would have just enjoyed what I did have. Uh, life didn't really begin at age 16 when I got my driver's license. It began when I was born. And we do the same thing with, with other things in our lives, right? Um, you know, as a, as a young kid, we think that, you know, life's not going to begin. You know, it, it'll, I can't wait for the day when I'm out of elementary school and in middle school. 
And I can't wait for the day that I'm finally in high school. I can't wait for the day that I'm finally graduated high school and I'm in college. And I can't wait for the day that I'm in college. And I can't wait for the day that I'm graduated college and I've got a job. And I can't wait for the day that I'm in seminary and I've graduated seminary and I've passed my exams and I've got it and so on and so forth. Or perhaps, you know, maybe it's, you know, I can't wait to get married, right? Life is going to truly, that'll truly be the start of my life when I finally get married or, or when I truly get this kid out of my body. Some of you mothers know what I'm talking about. Or fathers who, who've been husbands to, to mothers. It's so easy to get caught up in what's supposed to happen next. It's so easy to have our whole lives consumed by the things that we don't have. And the things that we can't wait for, right? The things that are coming next at some point in time in the future. I think the same thing very easily happens for us as Christians. Especially in light of the fact that we live in a world that's broken and fallen and full of sinful people and disappointments and diseases, and sicknesses, and death, and so on and so forth. It's easy to only look forward to the new heavens, new earth. Right? It's easy to only look forward to being in the presence of Christ. And those are good things. Those are things that the Bible commands for us to look forward to. And they're, uh, these are things that we have in the Scriptures for our good and for our encouragement and for our making it through, right? For our, our, our perseverance through suffering in this life. But sometimes, if we're not careful, we can lead ourselves to think that, that, that until I get there, life is not going to be enjoyable. Until I get there, the good part of my Christian life is not going to begin. But the Christian life begins at conversion. When the Spirit regenerates our heart and gives us faith in Christ and hatred for our sin, that we might walk in repentance. The Christian life doesn't doesn't begin when we die and go to heaven and be in the presence of Christ. And neither does the Christian life begin when Jesus returns and resurrects our bodies and and, and gives us a new heavens and new earth to dwell in for all eternity. Yes, those are good things, but that's not where the Christian life begins. The Christian life begins when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. I want to make an argument from 1 Kings 4 that the Christian life is good now. I want to make an argument that that the Christian life is enjoyable now. An argument that, that the Christian life doesn't, that we don't have to wait to have joy until we either die or Christ comes back but that Christ has given us things, his kingdom, his church, and himself in this life so that we can have joy here and now. And 1 Kings 4 is a great opportunity to do that because in 1 Kings 4, we're given a glimpse into the kingdom of Israel and what is probably her heyday. Right? It's never been this good before, and if we've read the rest of our Bibles, we know that it's never going to be this good again. 
In 1 Kings 4, we see the kingdom of God in full bloom. And it's, it's so wonderful, in fact, that it's a place where, like, for maybe like the first time in the Bible, if we've read it chronologically, like, I want to go and live there. Like, I don't know of many places in the Bible where I would want to go and live up to this point, but this one, I'm, I read King, 1 Kings 4, and I'm like, I would love to go and visit there. I would love to go maybe and even live there. This is a wonderful place. But from there, as we marvel at the beauty of the kingdom of God in 1 Kings 4, I want us to think really hard about how what God has given us today, namely his church and the king to rule over it, uh, that today is better than even then. Right? That what we have today is better than 1 Kings 4. I want us to look at 1 Kings 4 and long for the new heavens and new earth, right? Long for the things that it mentions in here, but also, but also take a really hard look and, and challenge ourselves to look and see how life that, that in Christ that he's given us now is good that we might have joy today and not just tomorrow. And one of the things, that, and the first thing that I want to look at as we, as we make an effort to do that is I want to look at the kingdom Itself, And again, like I said a moment ago, one of, the first, one of the things that you can't help but notice as we read through 1 Kings 4 is just how marvelous the kingdom is. Uh, just how wonderful it is. How, how when you read through it, you, you're like, this is, this is really good. Well, what, what makes it so good? What makes it so, a place that, that's so desirable? A place that's so, uh, that we long to go? What qualities make it that? Well, the first one, I think, is order, which is something that we haven't seen a lot of up to this point in Israel's history. Uh, Verses 1 through 19, yes, there are a lot of challenging names to read and pronounce correctly. Uh, It is that. But verses 1 through 19 also illustrate for us uh, what a kingdom, a well-ordered kingdom, looks like. In verses 1 through 6, we have a description of, of Solomon's cabinet, right? His right-hand men, the men that he trusts and rely on to, to help him and assist him as he rules over the kingdom of Israel. We have uh, Azariah and Abiathar as priests. We have Eli, uh, Elihareph and, and Ahijah as secretaries. Jehoshaphat was recorder. And Benaiah was the king uh, commander of the army. And then we have this other fellow, this different Azariah, who's Who's, uh, who's the governor, the, the man over the officers of the land. And it was his job to oversee these 12 men through, uh, scattered throughout 12 different regions of Israel uh, to provide for the palace, to provide for the king's table. And then we have uh, this guy named uh, Zabud, who was the king's friend, which, which really sounds like the best position ever. And I want to go be the king's friend. In reality, he's probably more than just a friend. He's, he's probably a personal advisor, someone that uh, Solomon talks to to talk things out and to bounce ideas off of and so on and so forth. But, but uh, not only him, but uh, we have Solomon's own personal uh, chief of staff, a man who, who maintains the grounds of the palace. Um, and then perhaps one of the few distasteful remarks comes in verse 6 when we learn that Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. But I'm going to spend our time this afternoon talking about just the wonderful things of the kingdom. We'll have plenty of time later to talk about the downfall of Solomon. 
But what we see here in, in 1 Kings 4 is, is Solomon has a cabinet in place. He has men that he can trust in the right places so as to run the kingdom efficiently. And it's doing just that. In verses 7 to 19, we see how Solomon has put Azariah in charge of these 12 officers. You know, each, like I said a moment ago, each a representative of a certain geographical region. And their job was to provide for the king and his palace, the, the, the people that he had in, and so on and so forth, which was no small job. We read down lower in the text that, that Solomon and his people, his guests, consumed no small amount of food. But at the same time, right, it didn't seem like a problem. There's no griping and grumbling from the people about, you know, Solomon's working us too hard. Solomon's demanding too much from us. Solomon's this and Solomon's that. There's no, there's no ragging on the king. They're doing what they're supposed to do. So order characterizes this kingdom. The second thing that characterizes this kingdom that makes it so desirable, I think, is just the utter abundance that's there. And this is illustrated by exactly how much the king's table requires for one day. As it mentions in the text, a hundred, uh, to translate it into to more relatable terms, perhaps at least for me, um, I know what a bushel is, maybe all of us don't, but a hundred, either way, 180 bushels of fine flour, 360 bushels of meal, 10 fat oxen, and 20 grass-fed cattle. Now I've just made most of your day, whoever likes to buy grass-fed beef at the grocery store, now you've got your, your biblical justification for that, and you can go home smiling. But 20 grass-fed cattle in a day, and 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. I don't care who you are, that's a lot of food. That's a lot of calories. But again, apparently it was not too taxing on the people, nor was there any problem finding this great amount of food. Verses 27 to 28 help us to see that. It tells us that that those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. They didn't only provide for the king's table, they also provided for his horses, barley and also, verse 28, and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. There's, There's order in the kingdom, there's abundance in the kingdom, and there's joy in the kingdom. Verse 20, the people ate and drank and were happy. The people are happy. Verse 21, the people brought tribute to Solomon and served Solomon all the days of his life. He was, a good, he was a good king and the people loved him and appreciated him. Verse 25, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Everybody had what they needed. They were content. They were happy. These specific verses point to the joy of the people. But you can hear the joy overflowing even in the writer's tone. Everything that he says is read with excitement and joy. He's he's delighting in telling us just how wonderful and magnificent the kingdom was during this time. So order, abundance, joy, also security. Security. Verse 25, Judah and Israel lived in safety. 
from Dan, which is the tip top north, even to Beersheba, which is the very bottom south. He said, the whole kingdom lived in safety. Uh, the, the whole kingdom had, had rest for her enemies, and, and not only rest from her enemies, but, but expansion. Right? Expansion. Not only, not only was the kingdom maintaining its boundaries, but it was growing. Verse 21, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. As we can, as, this, is, this is the biggest the kingdom has been, perhaps, since the people have been in the land. And, and Comparatively, especially if you look at the book of Judges, where it seems like the people are losing this plot of land and that plot of land left and right, this is the complete opposite. The kingdom is swelling. The kingdom's not shrinking. And sixth, what makes this such a magnificent kingdom is that God's promises are blooming in fulfillment. The most recent promise that God has made and kept was his promise to Solomon that he would give him Wisdom, and not just wisdom, but that he would give him wisdom over and above. Plenteous wisdom. And God has done just that. Verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. And breadth of mind like the sand on the sea is never ending. God kept his promises to Solomon. But he's also keeping promises that he made a long time ago to Abraham. Verse 20, the people of Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. The terminology sounds familiar. That's a promise from way back in Genesis twenty-two seventeen. We're talking about in Hebrews 11 this morning where Abraham didn't get to see the fruit of his promise. Well, here it is. The promise fulfilled Genesis twenty two seventeen, where God told Abraham that he would make his offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. God's promises, what makes this kingdom so wonderful is the fact that God is fulfilling his promises. He's being faithful to do what he said that he would do. And again, the point of, of going through and, and pointing out all of these different things, the order of the kingdom, uh, the abundance in the kingdom, the joy that's in the kingdom, the security of the kingdom, the, uh, the extension of the kingdom, and the promises being fulfilled in the kingdom is to, to draw our attention to the, to the fact that God's kingdom under Solomon's rule is stunningly beautiful. Again, a kingdom that most of us would probably pack up and move to today. We wouldn't have cell phones. That might be a problem. Or Netflix or anything else. But, but nevertheless, it's stunningly beautiful. And we may read that passage and we may, we may see those things and, and, but, but say to ourselves in the back of our minds, yeah, but I don't have any of that. The place that I live is not stunningly beautiful, at least not like any of those things. Again, is that true? Because what, what has God given us? I'm not talking about possessions. I'm not talking about physical things in this world. I'm talking about the Lord's church. 
Christ's bride. This particular church. It's really easy for a lot of us to get, to get caught up in the dross of this life. It's really easy to get caught up in all the world's problems and all the world's suffering and all the world's gloom and doom and to, and to never really think about the blessings that the Lord has given us, especially the blessings that He's given us in the church. It's really easy to slip into the mindset of, of thinking that there's, there's nothing in this world that I can enjoy right now. And I'm, I'm patiently waiting. I know my joy is coming, but, but there's no, it's easy to think that there's nothing in this world that I can enjoy right now. Right? I'm going to enjoy being in the presence of Christ when He calls me home. I'm going to enjoy that resurrection body. I'm going to enjoy being with Christ for eternity. But I really don't have that much to enjoy today. And I would argue the fact that that's that's not wrong. I mean, that's not right. That's wrong. It's really easy to approach the Christian life of, uh, with, from the perspective of, I'm just trying to make it to the end. And that's true. That's good. It's really easy to, to, for the, the general tone of, of our minds to be, this is just barely bearable. So I'm just going to stick it out but to not really ever experience joy. But I would argue, again, that the reality is is that we don't have to wait until either Christ calls us home or Christ returns to experience joy. I would argue that the church is God's gift to us for our enjoyment now, today. Now, that the church is beautiful now. That the, the church is, is magnificent now. I think about Jesus himself, like I was reading in Ephesians 5 a moment ago. Does, does Jesus say that he's going to wait until he returns to delight in his church? No, he loves his church now. He died for his church on the cross. He loves his people now. He loves her right now. And so I, I would say that, that the impetus then is on us to love the church like Christ loves the church now. And to so enjoy her now. To be proud of her. Right? To be proud of the church. To delight in the church. To compliment the church. Not, not in, in verbal compliment, but, but to give to the church the gifts that God has given to me. To find a way to serve, even if it's just in a very small way, to add to the church's beauty by God's gifts that he's given to me by his grace. To enjoy the church, to be proud of the church, to compliment the church, but also to tell people about the church's beauty. And I think this one's very important for our day and time in particular. It was just, it came up as a, a notification, I haven't read the story yet, but on my phone as I was leaving home a few minutes ago, a major news outlet releasing a story about how one of the church's, Protestant church's big denominations has covered up some scandal for a long time. Right? The world out there 
And we ourselves as Christians often talk about the church and all the things that she's doing wrong and all the ways that she's incomplete and all the ways that she fails and all the ways that she falls short. What if we talked about the church, Christ's bride, in a way that we were, we were proud of her? Right, the church gets a bad rep today, but, but how many of us are here this evening because the church took care of us? Christ through his church took care of us. And Christ through his church didn't give up on us. Christ through his church discipled us. And Christ through his church disciplined us. Yes, the church has her problems. And yes, she has her flaws. But that doesn't mean that we can't love her. That doesn't mean that we can't be proud of her. That doesn't mean that we can't be a part of her and add to her. That doesn't mean that we can't enjoy her today. And in all the people that Christ has gathered into her. Don't, don't, catch the, don't, don't grab hold of the idea in your minds that, it, well, the church is not perfect, and so I'm not going to give her anything. I'm not going to be a part of her. None of us takes that approach with our spouse. Right? Our spouses aren't perfect, but we love them. We enjoy them. We take care of them. We, we talk, uh, we speak well of them. So this passage reminds us of, of just how beautiful and magnificent, or it shows explicitly just how beautiful and magnificent the kingdom of Israel is in First Kings 4. But it helps us to, to think and to contemplate on the fact that God has given us a beautiful kingdom, which is His church, His bride, to love and to serve and to enjoy. He's given us a beautiful kingdom, but He's also given us an absolutely splendid kingdom. King, which this passage also points us to. King Solomon is, is absolutely splendid in this passage, mostly. And, and again, there are some portions of it that we would maybe like, uh, uh, that doesn't sound too good. But again, we're going to get time to talk about those later. Now, I want to just glory in and revel in the fact of just how wonderful it is to see God's wisdom poured out in a man and how splendidly magnificent that is. Well, how do we see Solomon's magnificence. Well, it's in the fact that he's the man running the show. Yes, under God, under Christ, but yes, he's the man running the show in the kingdom. He's the one who's bringing the order. He's the one who's bringing the security. He's the one who's bringing joy to the people. His uh, godly given wisdom is bearing fruit out among the people, and they are happy. Right? God's uh, godly wisdom in action in Solomon is truly magnificent. But verses 29 to 34 really hone in on Solomon as king, and Solomon especially as a splendidly magnificent king. Verse 29, uh, it talks about how abundant Solomon's wisdom and understanding was. It was beyond measure and breadth of mind, like the sand on the seashore. It was unending. And not only that, but it was wisdom that was greater than anyone else's. So that Solomon, verse 30, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and Hermon, Heman and Calcol and Durda and the sons of Mahol 
And his fame was in all the surrounding. You see what the author's doing here. He's showing us just how abundantly surpassing all other people in Solomon's geographical area that, that his wisdom was. It was wisdom in abundance and it was wisdom that was greater than anyone else's. And it was wisdom that was put to writing. Verse 32, he also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. And he, Solomon wrote it down. His wisdom is preserved. And his wisdom is not narrowly focused on one thing. And Solomon's wisdom gave him insight into who God was and gave him insight into how to be a good king in the kingdom, but it also gave him uh, insight. It's, his wisdom was all-encompassing, even to the things that were made. Verse 33, he spoke of trees from the cedar, the biggest in Lebanon, to the hyssop that grows out of the wall, from largest to smallest. He spoke also of the beasts and of birds and reptiles and fish. Solomon's wisdom was recognized, verse 34. And the people of all, there's that word again for the fifth time, people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from the, all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. God blessed Israel with Solomon. God blessed Solomon with wisdom. God has, has made Solomon into a most splendid king. And we see Solomon's kingship here. And again, kind of like we were with the kingdom. We're like, I want that guy to be my king. I want that guy to be president. I want that guy to rule over uh, this particular kingdom. When we fail to realize that, that God has given us a king. He's given us a king. God's already blessed us with a king whose, whose wisdom supersedes that of Solomon's, whose wisdom and whose splendid beauty exceeds that that we see in Solomon here. And again, it, it's really easy to think that because this world seems so much to us as just a wreck and so much a mess and so broken, it seems, again, like Christ is not on his throne. It seems like, as we look around, that, that King Jesus isn't king here. He isn't king today. And it's easy for us, again, to long for the day when Christ returns and he will judge the heavens and the earth and he will remake, uh, give us the new heavens and the new earth, and he will actually and truly be king there, right? We'll get to see his kingship in full bloom in the new heavens. And it's, it's easy to remember that and forget that, no, Christ is just as much on his throne today as he will be when he returns with the clouds from the heavens. Jesus is king now. The New Testament recognizes this fact. He's king and king, Lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6.15 and twice in Revelation. The Bible speaks of the kingdom as belonging to Jesus. We could go on and on. The, the New Testament teaches that Christ is on the throne. And he's not just a king. 
but he's a magnificent king. He's a fantastic king. Whereas Solomon's wisdom overflows into songs and proverbs, Christ's wisdom overflows into, into the entire Word of God, everlasting. Indeed, Christ was the source of Solomon's songs and proverbs. Whereas Solomon's wisdom was recognized by the people of his day across the world, which is no small thing, Christ's wisdom is recognized by people throughout all time in all places through and into eternity. Whereas Solomon's wisdom included things like trees and hyssop and birds and reptiles and fish. Christ's wisdom concerns itself with things such as the number of hairs on my head and my needs. Whereas Solomon's wisdom orders the kingdom in in an absolutely magnificent way for a season at least. Christ's wisdom orders the affairs of my life in in, in all creation perfectly without flaw forever. And so what do we do with that? Well, I would just ask you this evening to to rest in the kingship of Christ Jesus, to know that He's not just going to be on His throne at His return, but that He's on His throne now, that He's enthroned and empowered today, and to trust in King Jesus, to rejoice in King Jesus, to be confident in King Jesus because He knows how to take care of His people. He knows how to run His kingdom and there is no accident. So don't be a Christian who who waits your whole life to enjoy Christ's kingdom and Christ as King. Don't Don't be the kid that just waits to get his driver's license because that's when life is going to truly begin. I can't be joyful. I can't be happy until that moment. We don't want to spend our entire lives waiting on things to get better while they are the way they are now for a reason. If Christ is king, then things are the way they are for a reason. Right now is the start of our eternal rest and our rejoicing in Christ. Not, not when we die, not when Christ returns, but, but Christ has given us life now. And so, clo- one closing application. For a lot of us in the room, it's really easy, again, to think, to, to think that the good is only later. But one of the outflows of that, one of the products of just thinking that good is later and not now, right? Thinking that I don't have anything to enjoy now, my, my joy is going to come later. One of the products of that, of thinking there's nothing to rejoice in now, is, is that we're chronically melancholy. Right? We're always somewhat sad but Christ has given us himself for our joy right? we don't have to be Christians who are empty and dry of our happiness we can rejoice with the people of Israel like it says I believe in verse 20 we can eat and drink and be happy 
because of the fruits of the labors of our enthroned king. So let me challenge us as we close with with those of us especially who struggle with being joyful Christians. Number one, pray for joy. Pray for joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's, It's something that the Holy Spirit is concerned with. But secondly, let me challenge you to fight hard for your joy. I don't not not by not by faking happiness, right? That's not what we're that's not what we're talking about, but but by enjoying what Christ has given us now. And to work hard to be joyful Christians now, to enjoy the church now, to rejoice in Christ now. And for those of us in the room who are like default joyful, I'll close by just one, one exhortation. Be patient with us, those of us who, who aren't that way. But keep being joyful because it does rub off. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that, yes, this creation has been cursed and yes we feel the curse in our bodies and yes we feel the effects of sin and we see the effects of sin all over the place and and we do lord <laughs> long for you to return but we thank you for giving us both a a wonderful church body and a wonderful king who's seated on his throne even today for our joy even now. We pray and thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.